Uh, good morning. Along with Tim, I want to welcome you here, and uh, I'm excited uh, for uh, the funds we will raise through our Christmas giving projects. Hope you head to the to the website and check out the uh, Canucks jerseys. Um, in terms of Christmas, uh, you may also be wondering what is Christmas Eve going to look like uh, this week in our weekly update. We gave you some some info, which is that we are going to be doing uh, one live online gathering at 2 p.m. on Christmas Eve. Uh, now it's online, so if you can't make it at 2 p.m., it'll be available for the rest of, uh, of the day. In fact, that's why we're doing it at 2, so that those who want to meet early can meet early and the rest can watch it when they want. But we're hoping, we're hoping that as many people as possible uh, can tune online at the same time, kind of like we're doing right now, and that we will uh, celebrate the coming of Jesus. So there's going to be carols, there's going to be a, a segment for the kids, there's going to be some readings, and of course, there's going to be the story of Christmas. And so we're hoping not just that we as a church will will tune in and will connect, but really we see Christmas as a time where we can uh, share the, the Christmas story. And so normally we would be inviting people to come and, and be here in the building with us. Uh, this year, uh, we can invite people to tune in uh, for the Christmas Eve uh, online gathering. And so next week, we're going to have some digital invites sent out. So you can, you can send it to someone, email, text someone, and tell them, hey, tune in. Uh, we also have some physical invites, some actual invitation cards. Uh, if you want some of those, come by the church office this week, and we will give you some of those. Uh, but really, we're hoping, what well, we always hope at this uh, time of year, which is that we as a church will celebrate and that we will invite other people in uh, to hear the hope of the Christmas story. So I'm going to begin right now by praying for that, praying for the season, and then we'll get to our text. Lord God, I am thankful for the Christmas season. Lord, what a great uh, rhythm of the year, uh, Christmas and Easter, to remember the most significant things that you have done for us. Now, I pray that this Christmas would be no different. I pray, Lord Jesus, that many, many people would hear uh, the story and hope of the Christmas message, be it through our uh, online service or through other uh, churches uh, preaching the gospel. We pray in whatever way you, you see fit, Lord, that many, many people would be impacted, many people would be saved. And so I pray, Lord, for us that you would um, bring to mind those people in our lives that we know just uh, don't know the Lord or, or need to be encouraged. I pray, Lord, that we would take the time in prayer, just to invite them, and Lord, that uh, many people would hear about you. So, so thank you for uh, this season. I pray, God, for your blessing on us, and I pray right now, as we look to a, a small portion of the Christmas story, Lord, that you would encourage us in this as well. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning uh, by telling you about one of my most favorite Christmas movies, of course, my favorite movie is The Nativity Story, of course, but second to that, or maybe third, uh, is uh, the movie that's just called A Christmas Story. You know that movie? It's about a little, little boy kind of set in a Norman Rockwell-type uh, setting, a little small town, and uh, he is looking for a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas. Um, there's a lot of great scenes uh, in that movie. There's the tongue on the frozen pole scene. There's the leg lamp scene. But uh, one of the scenes that came to my mind for our text today it's a small scene that happens uh, in, the, in the school, uh, in uh, Ralph's class. And there, uh, the teacher is writing on the board a sort of assignment just before Christmas, and she writes, uh, class, she says, um, we are going to write a theme. And when she says a theme, everyone in the class, all the kids go, Ugh, because they hate writing themes. Uh, they, they find it difficult. A, a lot of students are like this. Um, but themes, uh, I'm going to suggest to you, are actually really, really helpful. Uh, they're difficult because to write a good theme, you need to take an entire story and kind of distill it down to one sentence or one word. 
Uh, but they're helpful because they really help us to understand um, uh, the, the core of a story. For example, um, you know, if I were to say to you, if someone said, what's Star Wars about? Uh, you could answer, well, it's about a, you know, a bunch of people in space. They've got you know, crazy uniforms on. There's creatures. They battle each other with blasters and laser swords. You could tell kind of what happens. Or you could say, look, Star Wars is about the temptation towards evil. Or it's about the bond of family. Or, or it's about redemption. And when you say that, you're, you're talking about the theme. And, and themes are valuable. Because they do take us to the center of a story, and usually they help us to understand uh, more about who we are as human beings. And themes in the Bible are especially important because they don't just help us understand who we are, they help us understand who God is. And we've been looking at biblical prophecy, and there are themes in biblical prophecy. Patterns that we can see in the way that God has worked throughout human history. So today, uh, as Tim mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23, and uh, this is the part where Joseph and Mary and Jesus uh, flee to Egypt and then come back again. And there are actually three uh, fulfilled prophecies in this section. But these prophecies uh, are not the specific prophecies that we've seen already, like uh, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and then Jesus is born in Bethlehem, or the virgin will bear a child, and Mary, the virgin, bears a child. It's not that kind of fulfillment. Uh, what we see here are thematic fulfillments. It's, it's kind of a, a development of some of these big ideas of how God works in human history, of his heart for humanity. So with that in mind, we're, we're going to look uh, to these three different biblical prophecies and the themes that come from them. Uh, but just a little context before we get to the first one. Uh, this is after Jesus uh, was born. This is after the wise men have come to visit him. So probably two years after Jesus was born, the wise men came. If you remember, they went first to Jerusalem, asked Herod, you know, where is the newborn king? Herod asked his wise men. They said, well, in Bethlehem. And so as the wise men headed out, uh, Herod said, look, when you find him, tell me, because I want to come and worship him, which was not true. Uh, he wanted to come and probably destroy him. In fact, certainly destroy him. And thankfully, God warned the wise men to not go and tell Herod what was going on. And so they went back by another route. And uh, now, right after that, we get this. So this is, uh, again, Matthew, uh, starting in verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So our first theme that we see is one of divine protection. Divine protection. Now in this case, uh, it's specifically the protection of a child, uh, of Jesus. And that theme is a pretty compelling theme, uh, that of protecting a child, protecting an, an innocent. Uh, we see it over and over again in, in books and movies. Uh, in fact, uh, speaking of, of Star Wars, my family and I have been watching The Mandalorian, uh, which, if you don't know, is, uh, is this guy. Here's a picture of him. A Mandalorian is a guy in a helmet, and the interesting thing about the Mandalorian is that even though he's wearing a helmet almost the whole time, uh, especially in the beginning of the series, you would think like you would think it'd be hard to connect with this character. But if you see in his arms, he's got uh, what, what was called the child, this little creature, Baby Yoda. And because the Mandalorian 
was caring for, protecting this child, immediately, as an audience, we saw him as a good guy, as a virtuous character, one who we could identify with and we could root for, uh, simply because he's protecting this little, uh, he has a name now, I forget his name, but little, little child. Um, those who were seeking to destroy the child, we knew were the evil guys, right away. And the same is true in, our, in the Christmas story. Even if we don't know anything else about Herod, the fact that he wants to search and destroy this child, we know right away how, how cruel and wicked he is. And we know right away the heart of God, that he would intervene to protect this child. And this theme of protection is be, uh, one that we see throughout, throughout Scripture, not just practical protection, but as we're going to see, also spiritual protection. Let's look at the prophecy itself. Because it becomes clear when we look at the details. So in verse 15 of our text, it says simply, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a quote uh, from the prophet Hosea. So here's the original in Hosea, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. We heard it read earlier. God says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So in this case, all of Israel, all of the, the people of God are pictured as a child, and we have here God's very candid declaration of his love for his people. But the interesting thing is that God is not just, in Hosea 11, he's not just anticipating a time in the New Testament when God is going to protect a child, protect his people. It's also pointing backwards to the time of the Exodus. Because, because the language there, right, the wording is, out of Egypt I called my son or called my child. And that, that is the Exodus story that God sent uh, his people into Egypt to protect them from a famine. That was the story of Joseph. But then, after a couple hundred years, a new pharaoh came to the throne, and all of a sudden, uh, God's people were un in great danger. They were enslaved, they were abused, and they needed to be liberated. And so at that point, God sent Moses to call his people out of Egypt. It was one of the most dramatic pictures of God's love for his people, his power for his people. Uh, if you remember, there is... Ten plagues that descended upon Egypt by God's hand to bring Egypt to their knees. And then he saved them, brought them out through the, the Red Sea. It's a beautiful picture of the lengths that God will go to to protect his people, to liberate them from whatever threats and dangers exist in their life. We see this again in the Christmas story. That God is, is moving his people, in this case his, his child, literally his child, so that they would be protected and so that we would be saved. So the Christmas story is not just an isolated incident. We see this as a thematic, thematic development throughout history. But, but if you look even closer at the uh, passage from Hosea, we see that, that this idea of God protecting his people and freeing them from bondage goes beyond the physical threats in our life. So let's look back at Hosea uh, chapter 11. I'll read verse 1 again. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, this is verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. See, what God is saying here is that even though he saved his people from these many, many threats, from these dangers, the greatest and most persistent threat to his people is not, not out there, but it's actually in here. Because he points to the idolatry of the human heart. Even though God loved Israel and, and brought them safety and protection, they turned away from him time and time again. In fact, not long after God brought them through the Red Sea, the plagues behind them, uh, God demonstrating his immense power and his love, 
and bringing them to what will be the promised land. He's about to give them the law. Look at how, look at how the, the people of God, his child, respond. Here's Exodus 32, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, go down from the mountain, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what happens there is that God's people, even though God showed his power and his mercy and his love, because there was a little gap where God was talking to Moses and the people wanted an answer right away, they, they, they turned aside. In their sin, they created an idol and they, they worshipped something other than God. And what we're being told there is the same thing we're being told in, in Hosea is that one of the greatest dangers that exist in our lives is our own corrupt heart, is the fact that we consistently undermine the blessing of God by turning away from God, by, by disobeying him, by stepping into sin, by willingly engaging in sin. And God's heart for us is that that we would be protected from ourselves. Uh, I was reminded of some of these themes. I was listening to this, uh, this podcast this week that was about uh, a homelessness. And uh, it was a news reporter digging into the San Francisco area looking at homelessness and some of the ways that people have sought to alleviate it. And she was telling the story of a doctor named Sam uh, Samaras uh, who in the 80s really pioneered some of the, the ways, the best ways to house people and to help people. He created an organization called Pathways. And they were telling the story of one of the early days, and there's this man uh, named Alan who was on the streets. And one of the reasons he was on the streets, uh, he said, you know, in his own words, he said that he, he was a guy who struggled with anger. He would just pop off, he would get so angry very quickly, and he said it was because of a lot of the things that had happened to him in his life. He just had such a short fuse. Well, the problem was that Alan had threatened everyone in the organization, all the people that are trying to help him over and over again. And so Sam, his job was to go and tell Alan, look, one more strike and you're out. We can't help you anymore if you keep threatening people. And so what Sam did is he brought Alan to dinner. And as he began to tell Alan what was going to happen and, and you know, explained to him uh, that he only had one more chance, Sam, uh, Sam began to cry. And looking back, he said he was crying because he just, they had invested so much into helping Alan and he knew that, that he kept throwing it away and that if he that if things went according to pattern, that he would be on the streets again with no one to help him, and it just broke his heart. But see, for Alan, what happened in that moment is that, is that his heart softened. Alan said, he said, that's what made me stop. That's what made me begin to chill out. He said, this guy, this guy right here, he's trying to protect me. And he didn't have to do that. See, Alan recognized what Sam was trying to do was protect him from himself. He, he was pleading with him to turn from his destructive ways. That, that's, that's the heart of God for all of us. That, that he intervenes to protect us, not just from the things out there, from the things inside of us. See, listen, when we're thinking and, and, and delving into the Christmas story each year, we can read it on a superficial level. I mean, you can read it, you know, these are characters in the nativities, uh, Mary and Joseph and the wise men that we kind of read each year and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy. We can read it like that or we can read it in the way that God intended it. With all of these, these deep connections to the very nature of who we are as human beings and, and, and the fact that we need help and that God has brought help. He's brought us help. 
by quoting this, this prophecy from Hosea, he's reminding us that all of us, are, are, our greatest danger, our greatest threat is our own sinful and wicked heart. And see, when we read it with these prophetic and thematic connections, what we begin to see is that the Christmas story is not just a story about something that happened. It's a story about what is happening right now in our lives. That God is continuing to, to act to protect us and to liberate us. Because I'm not sure about y- you, but when I think back of some of the greatest disasters of my life, uh, some of them uh, have come from outside of me. There's been circumstantial hardship, uh, things out of my control that happen that you know, are, are very difficult to deal with. But there's been a lot of other times when the disaster has come because of me because of my hard-heartedness, because of my pride, because of my stubbornness. And when I think about the Christmas story, in this context, what what I see is that God knows that about me, and that he still loves me, and that he is calling me out of Egypt, out of that bondage. He's wanting to protect me, not just from the things around me, but from myself. So I think this is good for us to think about right now, because right now we may be tempted to think that the greatest dangers to us are out there. I mean, there's a pandemic out there, there's a virus out there, there's economic difficulties, all sorts of of challenges that are coming at us from out there. And we might be tempted to get upset with God for allowing this, for allowing us to not be able to gather together, for allowing the the government to do these things, for allowing a virus to exist in of itself. But, But let's not forget that the greater dangers to our health and our happiness and our peace have already been dealt with by God that none of this is out of his control. And in fact, he is revealing for us in the story of Christmas that that he knew the greatest danger to us is us. And that Jesus came so that he could go to the cross and die for us so that we might be set free from our own bondage, set free from our sin. So on that long road to Egypt, God was protecting his son, but through him, through his ultimate saving work, he was protecting us. Because that's God's heart towards his children. That's his heart towards us, even to this very day. So that's the first theme. The theme of divine protection in Christ. Secondly, we have the theme of divine comfort. And for this, I'm going to read the next section. Verses 16 to 18. The focus shifts back to Herod, back to Bethlehem. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the focus is back on Bethlehem. We see here that Herod wasn't bluffing. He actually sent his soldiers and went in and probably killed uh, upwards of 15 to 20 uh, little baby boys. It's a horrific scene. And it's a scene where Matthew puts the emphasis uh, on the weeping, uh, on the tragedy of the scene, of the hopelessness of the scene. Uh, The quote that he gives there in terms of the fulfilled prophecy is from Jeremiah 31.15. Let's look at the original. It was read... um, earlier, but let's look at it again. It says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. 
Now that actually is describing something that happened back in Jeremiah's time. Uh, that is the exile of God's people. They were, they were uh, conquered by Babylon and many people were killed and many more people were taken off into exile. So that town, Ramah, is in the north part of uh, just above Jerusalem. And so the picture that people would have had in their mind is all of God's people being taken off, walking through Ramah, weeping, crying for, for the fact they're leaving their homeland and going to, to Babylon hundreds of miles away. And Rachel, Rachel is the mother of Joseph, and she represents the mother of all Israel all the mothers that would have been weeping then. And so Matthew makes the connection to the, the mothers of Bethlehem that are also weeping. And you notice the weeping is a bitter weeping. It's a weeping where they don't feel that there is anyone who can comfort them because they say their, their children are no more. I mean, what help can you give in that sort of a situation? And sadly, those kinds of situations continue to this day. Uh, the, the thing that came to my mind uh, is from uh, a show that I watched with Don called The Crown, which is sort of a dramatization of, of Queen Elizabeth's life and the royal family. And one of the episodes in particular is about uh, a disaster in uh, the mining town of Aberfan in Wales. This is on October 21st, 1966. The town is situated in a little valley and the mine is nearby and the hills surrounding the town is where they would pile up all the excess rock. Uh, the waste rock, they call it the spoil. And there is this one big hill that was, it was taller than it should have been with more waste rock than should have been there. And after three weeks of rain, uh, the soil became very uh, destabilized and the, the mound of rock slid down the hill into the town. And it crashed into the school, uh, the town school. I'm going to show you a picture there in case you haven't seen it. Just imagine uh, the devastation of that scene. Especially, especially devastating when you realize that because it, it crashed into the, the school, that means that most of the children of the town were killed. In fact, 116 children died uh, that day. Part of the episode of The Crown is, is Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip um, responding to this tragedy. And Prince Philip goes to visit first, and he's there at one of the, the funerals, this mass funeral for all these children. And as he's talking to Queen Elizabeth about it, um, and she asks how he responded, he, he just says, I wept. I wept and I wept. The townspeople were singing this hymn, and, and he just, it clearly broke his heart. And clearly what he was saying is, what else could you do in that situation but weep? That, that seems to be what, what Matthew was saying. What, what else can be done when there's a situation where there can be no comfort? When, when there's death of a child, there, there's mourning and weeping, and it's right that we do that, but, but the mothers seem unconsolable. And it could, we could think that that's why Matthew is quoting this, this passage from Jeremiah, that at that time, also, it was a hopeless scene. All the mothers were weeping. In Bethlehem, all the mothers are weeping, and that's just the way it is, that sometimes there is no hope. But that's not what Matthew is saying. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. The reason that he quotes from Jeremiah is to show that, that even in the times of intense weeping and mourning, there is always hope. There is always hope with the Lord. And we know this because of the verses that surround Jeremiah 31.15, where God is speaking to his people. And look at what he says in verse 13. He says, Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, 
And the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Now to say those words to someone who is mourning the death of a child is a cruel thing to do unless you can actually bring hope. Unless you can actually bring comfort into that situation. Remember, the mothers, they didn't want any comfort. They didn't want to receive any because they felt like there could be no comfort. They felt like their, their children were gone into exile forever. That the children were dead, that they will never see them again. But the message of this passage is that with God, even in the worst of times, there is never a complete end. That there is never an end to hope. To the mothers of Israel, he promises that one day their sons will return. Later on in verse 17, he says they shall come back from, from the land of the enemy. There's a future for them. And for the mothers of Bethlehem, there's even greater hope. Because this is a story where a child is born. A child that will one day die to conquer death. Remember, Matthew is writing this after the resurrection. Matthew is writing this knowing the, the, whole, the whole story, not just the Christmas story, but the gospel story. And so he writes this and, and he connects it prof prophetically back to this idea of times of mourning because... What he wants for us to understand is that with Jesus, with Jesus, there can be comfort in those times of weeping. Because the Christmas story has in it the comfort of the gospel. And the gospel brings hope in every situation. And by hope, I don't just mean, I don't just mean thematic hope, like, like a, a good ending to a story. I, I mean real practical hope a real ministry of the Spirit in our lives. There was a couple that came to my mind as I was preparing this message, a couple in our church, Katie and Casey Craig. And, um, and I talked to them and asked if I could share their story, and they said, they said I could. Because, see, they've, they've gone through a season in their life where there had been great mourning and weeping for their children. Um, they went through a year where they had three miscarriages, three baby boys that that never were able to even take a breath. And it was an in intensely difficult time, of course, a, a time of, of weeping and mourning. But what they shared was that even in the midst of that very difficult time, God brought hope. God brought comfort. And the comfort that they received was, was the comfort of the gospel, that the end of this life is not the end. And Casey in particular, he said, um, years after that time when he was mourning the death of, the, of his mother, he got a, a picture, God gave him a vision. The vision that he, he had was of his mother and all of his children in heaven, even the little boys, and that he was able to go and, and give them names. See, that's really a vision of the gospel. That's really a vision of the hope that God brings into all of our life. I mean, this side of heaven, there will be weeping, there will be mourning. And there are many, many times when as Christian brothers and sisters, we are called simply to weep and mourn with each other. We're called to acknowledge the pain that we're going through. But we are also called, we also have the opportunity to speak hope and life into each other's situations. And, and the source of that hope and life is Jesus himself, the one who died and was raised again. So my hope for those of you out there who are feeling the weight of mourning, maybe, maybe you are weeping, is that you would recognize even in the story of Christmas, there is a comfort that comes from our God who loves us and knows us and, and who brought 
the comfort of life even in the midst of death. We're told in scripture that our God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. That comfort is Jesus himself. We thank him and I, I pray for all of us that we would know that comfort today. But there's another theme that we find. Not just the theme of divine protection or divine comfort. The third theme we see is one of divine acceptance. Now let's look at the last passage where we see this. This is beginning in verse 19. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So a couple of other historical details that will help us here. Um, after Herod died, the first Herod in our story, uh, his two sons uh, took over two different areas of Israel. Archelaus was in the south, Herod Antipas was in the north. Now Archelaus, uh, he was very much like his father. He was cruel, he was evil, he was very violent. And so Joseph is warned away from that, that the south is where Bethlehem was. But instead of going back to Bethlehem, he's led to the north. Uh, to Nazareth, where Herod Antipas ruled. Now, he was still a Herod. He probably wasn't a really nice guy, but he was more stable than Archelaus. So that is why Jesus grew up in Nazareth instead of Bethlehem. But you'll notice in the text here, Matthew says that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, look in verse 23. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this seems like a pretty straightforward fulfillment of prophecy. You would think that if you went back into the Old Testament, you would find some verse by some prophet somewhere that said, you know, the Messiah would be a Nazarene or the Messiah would come from Nazareth. But the puzzling thing is that there isn't any verse like that. Uh, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah coming and being from Nazareth. There's something called a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, which is like a, a vow of devotion to God. But the Messiah is never spoken of as being a Nazarite. And Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. So that, that can't be the connection. So we have to wonder, how exactly is Jesus being a Nazarene a fulfillment of prophecy? Well, the way to figure this out uh, is not to ask the question, you know, can we find uh, the word Nazarene in the Old Testament? Instead, let's ask the question, what does it mean to be a Nazarene? Like in the time of Jesus, what would it mean if someone called you a Nazarene uh, well, there's, there's two parts of it. One is that it simply meant you're from Nazareth, right? Like a Calgarian is from Calgary, a Vancouverite is from Vancouver, a Nazarene is from Nazareth. But it had other connotations to it, and they were not nice ones. Uh, if, you were, if you were called a Nazarene, that was a put-down. That was a very derogatory thing to say about someone, and that's because Nazareth was seen as a good-for-nothing town. Like if, if, if you came from some hick town in the U.S. and you went to New York, all the people in the city would, would look down upon you. And that's how the people uh, in Israel treated the people from Nazareth. They thought that they were worthless uh, because they were poor and uneducated and uncultured. And we see this reaction when people find out that Jesus is from Nazareth. Here's where a couple of his disciples, this is right when he's beginning his ministry, uh, look at their reaction to finding out uh, that this is where Jesus is from. Uh, John 1, 45 to 46. Philip found Nathanael 
and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So he's saying, we found the Messiah. Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? His response is, Nazareth, you got to be kidding. The Messiah can't come from Nazareth. That place is a dump. You're telling me that the Messiah, the one who's you know, going to save us, comes from Nazareth? That's foolishness. So that's what it means to be a Nazarene, to be looked down upon, to be, to be rejected, despised. And when we know that, uh, then it's, it's easier to see how this is actually is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because there's a number of times where the prophets uh, say that the Messiah will be treated that way, will be looked down upon, will be despised. Um, here's, here's one example. This is the clearest one. Isaiah 53.3, speaking of the Messiah, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So what's the point then of this fulfilled prophecy? Well, the point, the point is that Jesus knows what it's like to be scorned and rejected. And in fact, that was always the plan. See, Jesus was never supposed to come from the right side of the tracks. He was never supposed to win popularity contests at school and to identify with the well-respected people of the day. It's not because he, he wasn't worthy of respect. It's because that's not who he came to connect with, to identify with, to help. Jesus came to reach those who feel worthless and rejected. Jesus came to lift up those who feel lowly and forgotten. In fact, much of his ministry is communicating that the depth of his love, the depth of God's love for his people. Now look at Luke 12, 6 and 7. Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So what he's saying is, look, God cares for all of his creatures, even the little sparrows. In fact, if he cares for the sparrows, he cares for you even more. He knows you intimately. He knows all the hairs on your head. He knows who you are, and he loves you. He cares for you. He wants to bring you into his family. I think this is tough, though, for us to really believe. I think it's tough. It's tough to think that we're we're really valued and wanted, that, that we're really understood and accepted. And it's tough because probably for many of us, we've heard the opposite from the people in our lives. Or for many of us, we have the opposite kind of running through our minds a lot of the time. But do you see, this is the essence of the gospel message. That in spite of what we think about ourselves, in spite of what others say about us, in fact, even in spite of the, the crooked, wicked things that are true of us, God does accept us. God does love us. God does want to bring us into his family. Because it, it's more than just that we are accepted. What we see here in this prophecy is that we are understood. Because Jesus lived a, a life of, of rejection and scorn. He, he knows what it's like to, to grow up with people criticizing him. He knows what it's like to, to step into this public sphere of life and have people reject him and despise him and ignore him and overlook him. In fact, the truth is that that's how we all treat Jesus in our sin. We've all turned our backs on him. We've all ignored him. We've all rejected him. We've all gone our own way 
certainly before we came to Christ, but even in our faith, there are times when we, in disobedience, step in the other direction and we do it again and again and again. But the beauty of the gospel is that his love for us is greater than our rejection of him. That's what we see played out time and time again. In fact, listen to these words from Peter. This is Peter describing, talking to Christians, people who believe, describing how accepted we are by God. This is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice the, the degree of our acceptance. We are a chosen people. We are a holy people in spite of all our unrighteousness. We are God's people. We are a people of light and hope and love in spite of the darkness within us. And the last line tells us how all of this happens. I'll put it up one more time. Look at, look at the words there. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. Look, if there's a theme that runs underneath all of the other themes in the Bible in terms of God's interaction with us, it's mercy. Because mercy means undeserved favor or kindness. That, that someone would interact with you in, in a manner of love, even though you've got your back turned, even though you're hard-hearted, even though you're stubborn. That's, that's how God treats us. That's what drives all of the things that we've seen in the story of Christmas. His protection comes out of his mercy. That, that he takes pity on us in our sin. That he wants to lift us out of it. He wants to protect us from ourselves. His comfort comes out of his mercy. That, that even though we're broken and weeping because of the sin we brought into the world, he wants to bring comfort into our lives. He wants to lift us up out of it, in, into the joys of heaven, the joys of his presence. And his acceptance comes because of his mercy. Because even though we've rejected him, even though we've, we've despised him and, and treated Jesus as a Nazarene, he loves us. He's gracious towards us. He extends forgiveness towards us. None of that is deserved, but all of it is freely given through Jesus. So again, as we come to the story of Christmas, um, what I want us to see is that it's a reminder of how God has worked throughout history. That even now, for those of us that, that are feeling threatened, those of us that are in need of protection, those of us who are in need of comfort, those who are in need of acceptance, that, that God's activity is the same that he's already done everything that needs to be done for us to be redeemed, for us to be made whole, but that through the, the blessing of his spirit and his word, he continues to, to tug us and pull us in the right direction. And that direction is closer and closer to him. So I'm gonna close in prayer and pray that we would know him in this way and that the story of Christmas would lead us to, to understand him more truly in light of these themes. Pray with me. Lord God, I, I do pray that we would know you in this way, that we would see that throughout all of human history, uh, God, this has been your heart towards your, your people, that human beings, Lord, you've sought to protect us, you've, you've sought to comfort us, and you accept us in spite of our sin. 
I pray, Lord, for those that are watching or listening, those who don't have faith, I pray, Lord, you would work in their lives. Help them to see in this story itself, the Christmas story, the depth of your love for them, all that you've done to to bring hope into their lives. And I pray, Lord, for those of us that, that maybe know you, have faith, and yet right now it's just a very difficult time. Lord, I pray that you would you would open our hearts and open our minds to see once again the depth of your love and to see that you are actually at work. You always have been. You still are right now. And Lord, that we can cling to you and we can experience the, the hope and the comfort that comes from having Jesus as our Savior. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did come. And I pray that you would lead us to know you more and more this Christmas season. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.